Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. Uh, it is lunchtime in California on uh, December the 17th. And sometimes, unfortunately, uh, words aren't enough. The news is once again very, very bad today on, on the COVID front. Uh, the Guardian is reporting record deaths. Uh, so is CNN. Uh, we apparently surpassed 17 million official COVID cases in my home state of California. We're not allowed out. So since I'm not allowed out, I need to be on my computer talking to one of the world's leading experts on COVID and on the crisis uh, still affecting the world. Um, Nicholas Christakis uh, uh, is um, a Yale professor of social and natural science, or in a word, a physician, and the author of a new book about, um, about, uh, 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 about uh, the, the, the crisis, uh, which um, is changing the world, Apollo's mission. Uh, Nicholas, uh, welcome to um, welcome to Keen On. How depressed are you by today's news? Well, I mean, today's news is just an increment on yesterday's news, and tomorrow's news will be an increment on today's. There's nothing especially bad about today. It's just relentlessly bad right now from the point of view of mortality. Now, there are some people who will say that you know, three hundred thousand Americans died, and that's not so bad, or that um, our response to the pandemic has been um, overly dramatic. Uh, but I think it's really important to understand that what's happening to us is not so much what we are doing to ourselves, but what the virus is doing to us. Even 1,500 years ago when there were plagues and there wasn't a state apparatus that said restaurants need to close or schools need to close, the economy collapsed. The economies collapsed during times of plague. People die during times of plague. And the only thing that's unusual about this plague is that it's happening to us. We think that this way of living is so alien and unnatural, but plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us. And so I think we need to be more mature and more pragmatic in our response if we want to minimize the damage uh, that is done to us. Nicholas, um calling for maturity when it comes to the American people might be slightly ambitious. Um, your book, one of the things I like about your book, Apollo's Arrow, is it is deeply historical. And of course, the title Apollo's Arrow refers back to Apollo, to uh, the Homeric uh, legend of Apollo. Um, what is it? Uh, about Apollo that so intrigued you to call your book about COVID-19, Apollo's Arrow, Nicholas? Well, the book, of course, re you know, reviews um, 
coronavirus. It reviews its its emergence in our species in November. It reviews the early days of the uh, of the epidemic in China. My my lab group was did some work there, uh, studying what was happening with the movement of people in China uh, in January and February through Wuhan. Uh, the book talks about the epidemiology and the virology of the pathogen. It talks about the vaccines uh, and uh, and our responses, the early history in the United States. But the one of the principles that I'm trying to help people to see is that we can really understand what's happening to us and what's uh, likely to happen uh, if we position the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic in a broader perspective. And we understand that these experiences that we're having are actually quite ancient. For example, even the fact that healthcare workers are dying in the plague of Athens in 430 BC, Thucydides writes about how all the doctors were dying. Uh, this is not new, in other words. These are very old things. And so the reason I use the Paulo Zero is that this is the, uh, you know, the, the plagues have been featured in the Bible. They're featured in, uh, in the Homeric myths, uh, stories. They're featured in Shakespeare, in Cervantes. I mean, plagues are a part of the human condition and have been for thousands of years. And in fact, the, the Apollo's arrow is a reference to the opening of the Iliad when the Greeks had laid siege to Troy. Uh, and the Iliad tells the story of the last year of the war. It was a 10-year uh, siege. And um, the Greek army had invaded nearby vassal states of Troy and sacked them and brought the treasure and enslaved the women and brought them back. And Agamemnon, the king of the Greeks, had taken as one of his prizes a maiden girl by the name of Chryseis, and Chryseis's father had come to ransom her. He was a priest of Apollo, and he bought a big ransom to ransom his daughter. And Agamemnon not only refuses the ransom, and treat, and, but he treats the man very rudely, and he says, not only will I not release your daughter, she will grow old in my house, at my loom, in my bed. I mean, very vile. And the Greek troops didn't like what, what uh, Agamemnon was doing, and the priest goes down to the shore and he prays to Apollo, who he had, you know, prayed to his whole life. And he says, if you've ever liked any of my sacrifices, uh, punish the Greeks. And Apollo comes down from Olympus enraged and brings a plague and decimates uh, the Greeks. That's the beginning of, of the Iliad. So this was your opportunity, Nicholas, uh, as a scientist to, to bring the Iliad in. I did actually have that quote on a slide and I've somehow managed to lose it. So uh, I don't think we need to read it out, but certainly the Iliad no, and, very... and the Homeric legend does define the, the tenor, the character of this book. Well, I mean, it, the, it's a very po poetic story and, uh, and the poem is very beautiful. You know, the, it's, you know, nine days through the army go the arrows of the God. Uh, you know, first he killed the dogs the running dogs and the horses, then the men, funeral piles, uh, pyres burned night and day until finally Hera, the queen of the gods, took pity on the Greeks for she saw them perishing. Um, this, this idea of uh, invisible things that strike us, I mean, many ancient religions, many ancient peoples thought of plagues and illnesses like this as uh, you know, invisible arrows sent by the gods. The Greeks were not the only ones who conjured up this metaphor. But again, the point the point is, it's not a the book is the Apollo's arrow is not about ancient plagues. It's about a modern plague, but it's trying to remind the reader that um, many of the things that we're experiencing, for example, the grief and the fear and the sense of loss, you know, loss of life, a loss of livelihood, a loss of way of life, the blaming of others, the death of healthcare workers, all of these things, which 
which we're, are, we're reading about in the newspapers every day right now, have been features of plagues for hundreds of years. Uh, and we have accounts of that. So it helps us understand this experience as a as a fundamentally human experience, sad and and um, and bad though it is. Uh, Nicholas, many Americans watching this will be more familiar with uh, with the Apollo missions to the moon uh, in contrast with the stories from from the Iliad. Do you think there's something about America and its faith in science and progress that makes it particularly um, difficult for Americans to come to terms with the nature of a plague, of, of, the, of, of a COVID-19 type of crisis that seems to have been brought down by the gods? We can't blame the Chinese. We can't blame the Russians. We can't blame the Democrats or the Republicans as an act of God. America is a very religious society, but it doesn't seem to make sense of nature in terms of religion. I think um, I think there is a sense, you know, uh, we have been such a rich and powerful country for so long since the Second World War and such a distinctive country, frankly, of which I'm proud, this this um, you know, that we have a, a Bill of Rights, that we are a nation of immigrants, that we uh, describe ourselves as a nation of laws. I mean, of course, we have failed, too, as a country. We've done awful things. There's no doubt about it. But our ideals, I think, are very admirable. And I think the person on the street does have, therefore, a sense of American exceptionalism. You know, when I talk to my Greek relatives who, um, you know, were, or my European friends, they have a familiarity with war on their in their country, you know, being bombed, for example, or tanks in the streets, for example. Uh, my father, who's in his 80s, remembers the Nazi occupation of Athens when he was a little boy. So for them, this notion of a very serious disruption in society is not quite as alien, I think, as the average American today. Now, of course, many Americans have immigrated from other parts of the world where they've seen these types of devastating effects. Uh, uh, natural disasters, a warfare, uh, other epidemics of cholera or Ebola, for example. But for the average American, with the average sort of American sensibility, this sense of um, of specialness, American exceptionalism, I think it is a bit of a shock. Just the, in a way, the way 9/11 was a bit of a shock that you know that we would be attacked on our own home. You know, we America is not invaded. You know, the Mexicans, the Canadians don't invade us, but we were attacked on 9/11, and we are in, being invaded by a virus right now. And I think that is a bit of a rattles, I think, people and makes it has made it harder for us, I think, for us to confront it maturely. I think why well, I think you're right. And I think one of the interesting distinctions, perhaps, between America and, and Europe is that this kind of crisis brings out all the the morality of Americans, for better or worse. Uh, you are. Uh, you're very well known for for, for the, the book before this was called Blueprint, the Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, which is in contrast, I think, to any reference to Homer and the Iliad is a very optimistic book. A lot of the stories in COVID have been rather romantic, as if they're almost preparing us for a series of Hollywood, weepy Hollywood films about uh, death. This this piece in, in CNN, for example, is a married couple holding hands with their children while they both died. Miserable but romantic at the same time. Um, in your view, given Blueprint, has 
COVID brought out the best or is it bringing out the best? Does it justify your arguments in, in Blueprint? Well, um, that's both a straightforward and a complicated and subtle question. Uh, on the straightforward level, uh, for hundreds of years during times of plague, observers and thinkers have said that uh, the stress of the plague could bring out both the best and the worst in human beings. So for example, the fact that we're sharing a common enemy, we might band together to fight this enemy, that people would cooperate to repel the enemy. And at the same time, uh, the fact that there was a deadly contagion and people were dying, it could lead to kind of a dog-eat-dog, -dog, uh, every man for himself kind of behavior, both of which have been seen going, I mean, we have many accounts from the bubonic plague of both things, you know, incredible altruism by uh, nurses. They were typically uh, nuns in uh, who were taking care of people afflicted with the plague at great risk to their own lives, dying in great numbers, uh, or, or, or people that would take care of their neighbors who were sick to the opposite. People who, you know, were abandoned by their families, uh, dead bodies in the street, and nobody would would bury them because of, you know, they couldn't didn't want to take the risk or or sick people in their own homes, they would have home invasions. These are all medieval accounts of these things, uh, both of the good and the bad you see. And so I think you're right to um, to, to bring up the fact that this stress can, can uh, intersect with our innate uh, qualities for good or ill. So, so yes, uh, and we are seeing that in the United States too. We're seeing uh, selfishness, but we're also seeing tremendous uh, altruism. Uh, people are, you know, uh, charitable giving is going up. People are intrinsically banding together to live apart. Uh, people are uh, doctors and nurses and, and scientists are working round the clock, first responders to uh, take care of sick people at great risk to their own lives. Um, so we, we, we've had everything that you describe. So that's the, the direct answer to your question, that, that in times of plague, you see both the you can see both the best and the worst in human nature. And of course, the deadlier the plague, I would say, you might see more of the bad behavior. And this plague is not so obviously so deadly as, as bubonic plague. However, the more subtle answer is that- And I always like subtle answers, Nicholas. That's what I'm really digging for. Well, I mean, here's the thing. So, so the previous book, uh, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, was in essence an argument for- how natural selection had fundamentally shaped human interactions in a very fixed way. So for example, our capacity for love or friendship or cooperation or, or our capacity to teach each other things and learn from each other. These are all very distinctive qualities from the point of view of other animals. Other animals have sex with each other as we do, but they don't generally form sentimental attachments to each other as we do. Actually, birds do. That's another whole topic, the monogamy of birds. But anyway, um, other animals... Other <laughs> animals uh, we'll do that on. Yes, another time. Other, other, other animals don't form long-term, non-reproductive unions to members of their species. That is to say, they don't have friends, but we have friends. So we love our partners. We have friends. We 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 give to uh, people who are not related to us. For example, we we give money to strangers. We uh, adopt children who are not related to us. We we do all these things that are very unusual from the point of view of an animal. And so so my argument was is that um, natural selection has shaped us to have a very particular kind of good society, which I marvel at and cherish these capacities that we have. So that argument is lies at the core there. But now you see, we have also this 
shock, that this exogenous shock, this pathogen that is infecting us and affecting us, and it's putting that under stress. And we are seeing different kinds of social arrangements. For example, we're staying away from our friends right now. So, so in a way, uh, Paulo Zero is telling a different story. It's, it's, it's discussing the ways in which, despite our intrinsic and innate um, nature, there are things that can happen to us from outside of us, like an epidemic germ, that reshape temporarily our fundamental way of interacting socially. Well, I like the second answer, I think, rather than the first. It, as you say, it's more subtle. The subtitle of your book is The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. And I think the irony of the COVID-19 crisis is, as you say, on the one hand, it's bringing out our sense of community and of trying to be decent to one another. But one of the consequences, for better or worse, and this isn't a reflection on us, it's more of structural, social, social and economic uh, forces, is it's compounding inequality. It's the poor, it's the infirm, yes. it's the old, it's uh, African-Americans and Latinos who are being most affected by this. We had the I don't know if I'm sure you know uh, Walter Scheidel, the Stanford history professor, uh, on the show a few few months ago, uh, arguing he's written a book about inequality, and he said the only way that the kind of profound inequality we have today changes is either through war or a pandemic. Could you imagine this pandemic as changing these structural forces that upset so many of us and yet we don't seem to be able to confront or deal with, like inequality, like racial uh, injustice? Well, I think those are very, again, good and deep questions. Um, there have been arguments about this on both sides, uh, landing on both sides. So some people have said when um, you have such a uniform threat, you know, the, the germ doesn't distinguish among us. The germ will just kill us. Uh, it doesn't care whether you're rich or poor or or uh, urban or rural or whatever, if, if it gets into your body, you know, it does what it wants to do. Um, and therefore that that might lead to a kind of leveling where, um, and, and, and also the poor in some sense are already very poor. They don't have as much to lose as the rich. So- Well, except their lives. Yes, well, the, yes. And their health. Yes, of course. What I'm, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not saying this is, a correct state of the world. I'm, I'm merely setting up the, the the options. So one group of people think that perhaps uh, this pathogen will reduce inequality uh, by taking, let's say, more money from the rich proportionately uh, or, or absolutely than from the poor, etc. Another group of people, more correctly in my view, argue that actually a stressor like this will accentuate inequality. Uh, and it is absolutely the case that the poor are, and the disabled and the chronically ill and the incarcerated uh, vulnerable members of our society are at greater risk of, uh, of, of death from any sort of illness or calamity, um, and including infectious diseases. So infectious diseases, absolutely the burden of infectious disease falls more heavily on, uh, on, on marginalized populations, marginalized as defined by however you want to define it, actually. So, um, so if I had to guess, I think that the the uh, the pandemic is 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 likely to accentuate these inequalities. But the thing is, I think political forces will intercede to uh, to to redress this in part for a couple of reasons. First, we're already seeing uh, 
policy changes that are um, trying to reduce inequality. I'll give you one simple example. Uh, people that were hourly workers generally don't have sick leave. And, uh, and uh, unlike uh, you know people on a salary who you know have sick days, they can take three weeks off or whatever. But if you get paid by the hour, then uh, if you don't work, you don't get paid. And people suddenly realize that this is a stupid policy uh, during a time of a contagious disease. Because what happens, the person gets sick with the illness, they need to work. So they go to work sick. Uh, what you really want to do is pay them to stay home because you don't want them to come to work and make everyone else in the workplace sick or spread the infection. So we're beginning to see many employers redress this historical uh, inequity by providing sick leave to hourly workers, for example. Um, and I think that during times of plague, people realize that it is intrinsically a collective threat. You acting alone can take actions that protect yourself and your immediate family, but you can't actually stop the plague by yourself. People need to work together to do that. In fact, people working independently together, for example, if there's an invading army coming down to our border from Canada, let's say, and you like grab your gun to go stop the army, you're, you're useless. You can't stop the army. And even if everyone grabs their gun and goes to the frontier, uncoordinated, they're not very effective. So We're all connected then. And, and of course, many of you, uh, uh, many listeners, and including myself, first came across your work with your wonderful book, Connected, which is really a book about the digital age. Obviously, it's a pre-COVID book. Is there anything unique, do you think, about COVID-19 in comparison to other plagues, given our network society, given the digital infrastructure of the world, Nicholas? Yeah, I want to tell you what's unique. I just want to finish. I guess I was being too long-winded. I apologize. No, and I apologize for interrupting. No, no, no. You were redirecting me. I, get, I was getting long-winded. But let me, let me just finish that point, and I'll come back to what's different about this plague. So just to finish, so what is needed to fight a collective threat like a pandemic is organized action. The state has to somehow organize people. And to the extent you see that state action is required, this tends to the left end, left of the political spectrum, especially if the state is seen as competent, people will be more willing to surrender their rights to the state. So for a host of reasons, I think it's possible, even though the pandemic might intrinsically accentuate inequality, we may see political currents that militate against that. Just to wrap up the answer to the previous question. On the new question... Uh, on, 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 on your uh, best-selling book, Connected, which I thought was... A, I didn't agree with everything in it, but I thought it was a wonderful uh, book about uh, network, our networked age. Yeah, I mean, I don't think... I don't think... Uh, I, I don't think um, there are things that are new about online interactions and the and how online tools facilitate and to to a small extent I would say in very specific ways modify human social interactions but what's really different about this pandemic is that it is we are the first generation of humans to confront a plague during a time in which it is scientifically possible in real time to invent an effective countermeasure based on pharmaceuticals. That is to say, we can we have invented a vaccine in 10 months, which invented and proven the efficacy of a vaccine in 10 months. This is astonishing. No other, none of our forebears who were in the grip of a serious epidemic had this capacity, and it has never been seen before. So, so this is a very distinctive feature of this plague. And if anything, I would argue. The fact that we 
have invented this vaccine and that help is on the way, it's like coming, it's on the horizon, should up the ante for us to behave better, to continue to use the so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions, the physical distancing, the mask wearing, the the uh, you know the school closures and whatnot, uh, border you know rest restrictions on movement and so on, because if we just behave for a few more months, uh, we will be more and more able to deal with this plague using vaccines which will save many, many lives. That's true, of course, although it sounds like you're almost talking to one of your kids. But there are some longer term worries, which you, I think, bring up in a very interesting way in the book. One of the companies that your, your, your lab at Yale is, is nurturing is Hunala, which is supposed to be the ways for coronavirus. But as you say in the book, um, you are concerned with the future of privacy, particularly given the fact that privacy in our digital age is already under assault. Are you worried about the implications for privacy of apps and other, yes. other technologies which will force us to reveal our health? We're not going to be able to get on a plane or even perhaps get in our car or go into a store without proving we have the vaccine? Yes, I, I am worried. Um, the app that we released is a Hunala, H-U-N-A-L-A. -A. Uh, it's actually not a company. It's just an app that my, my lab released through Yale. It's like Waze for coronavirus. It's not a contact tracing app. It's not a backward looking app. It's an app that attempts like, like a traffic app to tell you, will you encounter the virus in the future based on who you know and where you live? Just like Pretty if creepy, though, isn't that? Well, yes, but it's all done anonymously, and it's it and, and it's. Wait, very, I've heard that one before, Nicholas. No, but it's it's privacy protecting. For example, the app asks you to access your contacts on your phone, but we don't copy the contacts, nor does the app copy the contacts. It's just a way for you to quickly indicate who you interact with. It's just like you're driving down the highway, and other individuals down this, you know, three miles ahead of you report that traffic is at a standstill, and you are anonymously informed of this fact. Uh, you, you don't know who is in the standstill. You don't know which drivers have been pulled over for speeding or whatever. But you're informed that three miles down, there's a standstill and you can exit the highway. It's like that. The app uh, crowdsources information from public sources and from other users and uh, feeds it back to you in, a, in using some ideas based on network science that my lab in, implemented 10 years ago for the 2009 H1N1 uh, pandemic, which nobody remembers because... Although it was a pandemic, it wasn't very fatal, so people don't remember it. Anyway, so the app does that in a very privacy-respecting way. Uh, and if you're interested in this, there was an article in The Atlantic that actually uh, praised our app for its... Yeah, I'm, uh, showing, I'm showing actually the, the, the Atlantic app. Um, is, that, is that The Atlantic? Uh, no, no, that, that's no, not that, The Atlantic. That's a different thing. But we had an article in The Atlantic early on that... You know, sort right. of noted the, our, that our app is, you know, very respects respects privacy. I think um, I think that uh, privacy protection is very important, and it's especially important in our culture. We had many strengths to bring to bear as a nation on the coronavirus uh, pandemic. We are a rich country. We have some of the world's best scientists and doctors. We have an open flow of information in our society. We um, were, we had a plan to deal with a pandemic, which alas, we did not implement. Um, and these were our strengths, which we squandered. The Chinese had different strengths. They're an authoritarian country. Uh, they uh, have a kind of more communitarian ethos, their culture. People are more willing to surrender their individual rights uh, for the collective. 
Uh, and uh, they clamp down on information in China to their discredit and to their self-harm early on. If they had listened to some of the doctors in Wuhan, they would have been better able to control the pandemic. But the Chinese, using their tools, uh, you know, have accomplished something rather astonishing, which is they have, you know, by comparison to us, almost no deaths. And um, so, so, so we had, but we had different strengths. I know. Um, I get that. Although I, I guess there are countries like Taiwan or Korea, which perhaps combine the best of America, relative best of America in terms of democracy, and China in terms of efficiency. Um, Nicholas, you are, of course, a distinguished physician, a Yale professor of social and natural science, one of the, the most distinguished academic physicians in America. Are you concerned with the way in which Trump and some of his people have been trashing science and Fauci and, 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 and the rest of the scientific community? Has it done long-term damage? Are people able to distinguish between a a reality television president and the realities of science and research? I mean, again, you ask very hard, they're simple and, hard and long answers to your questions, uh, Andrew. I mean, I think, I think, you know, Tony Fauci was, was writing articles about respiratory pandemics when I was in elementary school. Uh, you know, the, 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 the fact, and, and it's not just Anthony Fauci. I mean, we have, in the CDC is the envy of the world. We have some of the world's best epidemiologists. We have the Epidemic Intelligence Service. Other nations have copied our CDC. They even they even uh, copy. They call it you know the Chinese Center for Disease Control or the European Center for Disease Control. You know we're the CDC and everyone else is the CCDC or the ECDC. So we we have the scientific know-how we needed to deal with this problem. And as you're rightly pointing out. We didn't use it. And partly it was our politicians who failed us. And partly it was the American people who I think were not willing to hear unpleasant news. Um, now, in fairness to our politicians, there were other countries who did equally poorly. Uh, you know, uh, Italy, another rich democracy, England. Uh, but there were countries like Greece. I know you didn't say England is a rich democracy. It is a rich democracy. I'm teasing you. <laughs> but it's also an island. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things is, you know, uh, Taiwan, New yeah, Zealand. England isn't an island. Britain's an island, Nicholas. Yeah, well, it's okay, fine. Uh, oh, my God. If you're going to be like that, Andrew, we may have to, like, I may have to hang up. No, the, uh, the um, uh, Iceland is another case. I mean, there were, like, South Korea is functionally an island, you know, with the DMZ. So many island nations uh, were able to... Um, achieve control uh, more easily for obvious reasons. Right. Uh, on the other hand, some were not, like Iceland didn't do so well. But um, the point is there are many different explanatory factors. Uh, Greece and Germany did reasonably well, but, and they're not islands and they're European countries, et cetera. But the point I'm, I'd like to make is I care about my country. I care about the United States of America. And and I'm ashamed that we did so poorly. I mean, I just the fact that other countries did poorly is no solace to me. Uh, you know, we we uh, Bill Gates uh, gave a talk about a TED talk about respiratory pandemics. I don't know, ten or fifteen years ago, it has like thirty million views. He's been worried about this for years. Tony Fauci's been worried about this. The CDC's been worried about this. There are books called the National Plan for Pandemic Preparedness, uh, uh, plans that are updated by the CDC every few years. We knew this was going to happen. We also knew what to do. And when the time came, we we fumbled. And um, and I actually hold our leaders responsible for that, whether Democrat or Republican. 
And I think the White House, I think by any objective measure, has done an absolutely incompetent job, period. And um, and I think the price of that has been death. Very briefly, Nicholas, because we need to end now. I, I apologize for keep on cutting you off. You yourself were involved in a a well-reported scandal at Yale in terms of uh, political identity in 2016. Um, so you're quite aware of the sensitivities of race and cultural identity in America. Are you worried that certain groups are particularly, for, for good historical reasons, are particularly concerned about the vaccine, particularly African-Americans? How are we going to confront that? How are we going to convince African-Americans, given the history of vaccine that we should that they should be able to trust this 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 COVID vaccine. The 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 ethno-racial based differences in vaccine acceptance are not as large as people say. If you look at the surveying, there's some difference. You're right. We also have uh, very large anti-vax movements among white educated uh, middle class people in California, for example. So these are very heterogeneous belief systems that have many origins. The um, and it's very dicey because on the one hand, we would want to encourage uh, ethno-racial minorities to get the vaccine if they want it. I mean, people should get the people should do what they want. If they don't want the vaccine, they shouldn't get it. If they want it, they should get it. But what if, in fact, it turns out that there's some safety problems with the vaccine? Uh, so you, you once again, you have arguments on both sides. Some people say we should offer it first to minority populations, or we should make a special to do about the fact that minority populations might be resistant to the vaccine and we should bend over backwards to uh, offer it to them. But others people might look at the same set of facts and say, wait a minute, that smacks of experimenting. Why are you why are you reaching out first to this population? So I think the best approach is just to like put aside those ethno-racial um, differences and to emphasize our common humanity. We are all vulnerable to the germ. We can lay out the information about the benefits of vaccination and people can choose to get the vaccine or not. I don't think we, in our society, we need to, in fact, I don't think we ought to see every issue as an issue that involves racial difference. I'm, of course, intimately familiar with the history of, of these things. I, I've taught them for years. Uh, and I'm, of course, intimately familiar with the role of inequality in healthcare and health, in, in illness and in health. Again, I've I've worked in poor minority communities on the south side of Chicago. I was a hospice doctor in um, in a primarily African-American part of Chicago for years, taking care of people who were dying, going to their homes on Saturdays and trying to help. Uh, I, I've done research in these topics. I understand this history. But what I'm saying is it is not too, it is not necessary, in my view, nor to our credit, nor helpful to over accentuate this aspect of the problem when we're trying to roll out a vaccine. I think what we should emphasize is we are all human beings. We are all soft on the outside. This germ is having a field day with us and we need to work together to repel it. We are all indeed human beings. And, uh, and I think uh, that's one of the reasons to read uh, Nicholas Christakis's new book, Apollo's Arrow. Not only is it full of, of, of hard science, of charts and, and analysis on the scientific front, but it's also deeply literary and artistic. Uh, there are references to Bruegel's The Triumph of Death, his wonderful, I don't know if it's a wonderful, his, his resonant um, piece of work from uh, 1652, from uh, Edward Munch's self-portrait with the Spanish flu. And I think what 
what uh, Nicholas is doing is reminding us that we've been here before. Finally, Nicholas, there are two books you bring up in the book, in your book, in Apollo's Arrow, uh, Alessandro's Manzoni, The Betrothed, and of course, Camus' The Plague. You end your final chapter with a quote at the end of The Plague. Uh, Dr. Ryu, you, you, you write that Camus wrote, Dr. Ryu resolved to compile this chronicle so that some memorial of the injustice and outrage done there might endure, and to state quite simply what we learned in time of pestilence, that there are more things to admire in men than to despise. Very briefly, um, Nicholas, two brief ending questions. Uh, what have you most learned from COVID-19? in that context of Camus? And secondly, why should we reread Camus' plague? Uh, it's it's, it's a book answer. that a lot of people have written about in 2020. I'm going to answer both of those at the same time, which is exactly the line that I use, that there is more to admire in human beings than there is to despise. And I am very pro on our species, and I am pro on human beings. And as we are taught in medical school, there's nothing human that is alien to us. That is to say to doctors. And um, I just would hope for our country and for people listening that they would um, take solace in the fact that we're all in this together and that we can actually work together to um, to use the good parts of our nature to, to fight this virus. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.